welcome to Living With, a podcast by Health Union that explores what it's like to live with a chronic health condition. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. I recently had the pleasure of hosting Cindy Shimaleski here at the Health Union office. Cindy, who goes by the handle Myeloma Teacher online, has been living with multiple myeloma since her diagnosis in 2008 and has become a powerful advocate in both the healthcare professional and patient communities, including our health union community, bloodcancer.com. So you're known as Myeloma Teacher. Can you tell me about that? Well, um, I, I guess uh, I'm a Myeloma Teacher on Twitter and I'll, I'll give you this. You want to hear the backstory of how I, I became I my alumma teacher? It, it's, a, it's a little long, but I, I, I guess I, I, I will tell it. I have multiple myeloma, obviously, and one of the treatments for myeloma is a stem cell transplant, and a stem cell transplant failed to put my myeloma in remission, and that was back in 2009 where we didn't have as many choices of drugs as we have today. So at that point, I was almost forced to retire from teaching because my immune system was already compromised and I wasn't quite sure if I was going to be entering a clinical trial or doing some IV therapies. And IV therapy with teaching, those two things don't coordinate. So I did retire, and um, luckily my cancer started responding to one of the treatments I was on I was feeling this emptiness, like I no longer had a purpose in life, and really it was bothering me, but I didn't quite know what to do, and I was sitting there um, watching the Today Show, and Kathy Lee and Hoda told me I should follow them on Twitter, and since I had nothing to do, I, I didn't even have a Twitter account back then, I decided to explore what this Twitter thing is and decided to follow them. And when I did, um, I wasn't really interested in much what they were tweeting about, but I did see there was a search bar. And in the search bar, I typed in the word myeloma just for fun. And a lot of information came up about myeloma. There were some of the doctors who were the myeloma specialists, the key opinion leaders were tweeting. I saw some other um, patients on Twitter, so I decided just to follow them and lurk and see what they were doing. And I guess maybe two or three weeks into this, I got that aha moment that, wait, I could use Twitter to share all the things I've learned. So, um, but at the time, I think my Twitter handle was Cindy C or something, you know, where no one would be following me. I knew I needed to have the word myeloma in it to be searchable. So there was the myeloma doc and the myeloma nurse and help with myeloma. So I said, well, I'm a teacher. Let me become the myeloma teacher because I was a teacher who had myeloma. And once I became the myeloma teacher, I started getting a following and then when I started getting people to follow me, then I realized that the material that I was producing and tweeting out had to be good, reputable material, and it all started. And now I have over 7,000 followers on Twitter. Wow. I love that, because I love that you just chose the name because you are a teacher and you had myeloma, 
And yet, what a prophetic name it became because you really do share so much information there. And I, from what I've seen, mm-hmm. you're sharing a lot from some of the scientific um, conferences and kind of helping people understand what some of the advancements are, are, what are what's yeah. coming out in the area. Exactly. I'm very fortunate that I've been able to attend a lot of the scientific conferences. I just got back from the International Myeloma Working Group, which is a at, working International Myeloma Workshop Networking Group, and that's like a meeting that's held every two years. And I, I feel like, you know, just being able to live tweet from the meetings and from the patient perspective, you know, things that I think are happening that are exciting or new or things I didn't hear about. So I, I share that live from the meetings, but I also found out that um, not many myeloma patients are really on Twitter. So I started a myeloma teacher Facebook page where mm-hmm. not all the stuff I do on Twitter, but select things that I find from Twitter, then I will share on my Facebook page. So mm-hmm. I guess Twitter is where I get the information and Facebook is where I share it to the myeloma community. Yeah. And, and you've also been sharing your story on bloodcancer.com. I have, definitely. So tell me about Dakota. Well, Dakota, oh, I never thought I'd be asked that question. Well, Dakota's my puppy. Um, she's special to me because when I went through my stem cell transplant, she was only a couple, maybe a year or two old. And there were times where I just felt like I didn't want to do anything. But seeing her wagging her tail and wanting to go for a walk and things like that, she got me up and moving and got me outside and got me doing things. So she has this little special place in my heart. And I guess around two, three years ago now, um, she had a back injury and she hurt one of the vertebrae in her back that left her paralyzed. But she has her little wheelchair, and she she teaches me resilience. She really doesn't let her disability to get in her way. So Dakota's my special pal. Yeah, I saw some of the videos you shared, and she just looks so happy. Yeah, she, she is just... happy, you know. She runs around, and when we have her out on her front porch on her drag bag, how she just barks and gives everyone a piece of her mind that I, I know that her quality of life is still pretty good. Different, but good. So let's go back to 2008. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your what, what your what was going on in your life and how things started changing for you. Well, I think things started changing prior to 2008. Mm-hmm. As I said before, I was a fifth grade teacher. I taught math and science. And probably around, two, I know exactly It was Halloween day of 2006 because teachers usually don't leave their class with a substitute on Halloween, but was the only appointment I could get because I was having severe back pain. Mm -hmm. So I went and the closest appointment I could get was that day and I went to see an orthopedic doctor. And at that point, he asked me some questions. He made me touch my toes and do a few other things and diagnosed me with degenerative disc disease and um, gave me a prescription for the physical therapy and a prescription for some pain medications, different kinds. I don't re- quite remember what they were. There are three different kinds and sent me along my way. So I did the physical therapy. I was taking the pain medication, but 
the pain wasn't getting any better. It was kind of getting worse. So I would go back to my orthopedic doctor and explain that. I was thinking that maybe I wasn't really doing my exercises the right way and or I had a low tolerance for pain. Um, I got a new mattress. I just did everything for my back, and um, but nothing seemed to work for me. But back then, I was a really different person than I am now. I was brought up in that age of Dr. Knows Best. Yeah. So I, I kind of just blindly followed doctor's orders. And in the back of my mind, I kept on asking a question like, well, maybe he really should take an x-ray of my back. Maybe there's something else wrong. Maybe an MRI. But then I just talked myself out of it. I'm thinking, well, he, he knows what he's doing. He's the doctor. He would know if he, I need an imaging or not. And um, so I never had imaging for two years. And two years later, I think I went into his office and I was in tears and Finally, they took an x-ray, which revealed I had several compression fractures in my back. I lost three and a half inches in height. Wow, that's significant. It was a lot, yeah. And I, so all that pain were, were the fractures in my back. So I was scheduled, and but still at that time, I didn't quite know. Um, my doctor was questioning if I had fallen, if I was in an accident, and none of that was true. And... Um, so I was scheduled to have kyphoplasty surgery. It's a surgery that they insert this kind of cement in your back to straighten, to, you know, to repair those fractures. And part of that surgery, I had to have some blood work done, and um, the blood work was came back totally abnormal. So I finally was sent to a hematologist who knew exactly what I have, and that's when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So it was about two years of being treated for something else. And, and, you know, my message here is if there's a little voice telling you, ask, push a little harder, you know, because the, I think that delay in treatment really um, both physically hurt me and it took a while for my myeloma to get under control because of that. And it was, so it was the myeloma that was causing the bones to weaken. Right, that's one of, um, myeloma has what's called CRAB criteria, and the C stands for calcium, because sometimes there's high levels of calcium in your blood because it eats away at your bones. The R is for renal insufficiency because the myeloma cells are clear through your kidneys, and sometimes they clog up your kidneys. The A is anemia because it's a blood cancer. If you're having other things, if the blood cancer is taking up all that space, then the other blood cells are, aren't there. And the B is for bone pain and bone destruction and because that's one of the signs of myeloma is somehow the cells eat at your bones. I'm not quite sure how that happens, but that's what happens. Yeah. Thank you for teaching us about that. See, the teacher's always in me. I you know, love that. I, I wanted to get the blackboard out and put <laughs> We can have an accompanying slot. Uh-huh. Um, so what was your first treatment? How did, how did treatment start for you? Well, back in 2008, as I said earlier, there wasn't a lot of um, the treatments that were available now. And in 2008, they um, also didn't know that triplet therapy, a combination of three drugs, was better than two drugs. So mm-hmm. I started out with um, two drugs, Revlimid and dexamethasone, and 
back then. Also, I, I was very um, still following doctor's orders and really didn't know what questions to ask. I, I chose that combination just because they both were oral and I could continue to teach. I didn't bother asking questions like how effective are they, what will my side effects be, how much will they cost. I mean, I just, I, I really didn't have the health literacy to ask those questions, but thankfully it, it, they worked for some time. I think part of it is health literacy, like you said, and, and becoming your much more empowered patient you've right. written about now. But also, don't you think some of it is just you're dealing with the shock of learning you have cancer? Right. And you're doing the best you can right. under that overwhelm. Right. I kind of liked the idea that my doctor was just going to take care of me back then. Yeah. Although now I'm always part of that decision-making process. In the beginning, you are so shocked. Yeah. So, yeah. Why do you think it's important for people to be more empowered and engaged? Well, I've done a lot of reading, and it seems that empowered, engaged patients tend to have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because... Everyone's an individual, and nobody responds to treatment the same way, whether it is their cancer is going away or there are side effects. And I think if you're engaged, you could have those conversations with your doctor, like speaking about maybe some of the side effects that may be preventing you from taking treatment, or even if you were part of an online community, such as the health union communities, if you're engaging in a conversation, you might bring that back to your doctor. I kind of remember when I first started educating myself, I was part of, it was a listserv back then. They didn't mm -hmm. have Facebook groups or anything like they had now. You would think 10 years, but 10 years is a long time. And, um, and I would just lurk in those groups and see what kinds of questions they were asking each other. But I would write those notes down and then go to my doctor and ask, well, what about this? Or what about that? And sometimes they would say, oh, I never thought of that. Let me think. Maybe that would work. So being engaged, you might be able to spark something in your doctor that they might not be thinking about. Not necessarily what they were thinking is wrong, but a different approach. Yeah. I, I always think medicine is such a science and an art. Right. right. And it's the art part that sometimes we need the creative thinking Especially exactly. if your condition doesn't respond to the first treatment. Right, and especially when you're dealing with something like multiple myeloma, there is not one roadmap. It's not, you use this first, and if this doesn't work, then you use this, and if this doesn't work, there's no roadmap that way. And in myeloma, we have no biomarkers, so we don't know which drugs we're going to be responding to ahead of time. So it's a little bit different than some of maybe the other cancers. Yeah. So I know you wrote when you were first diagnosed that you had kind of a prognosis of about 29 months. Is that right? right. Mm -hmm. And obviously, thankfully, you're still with us. I am. What, what happened? What changed? Well, I, as I said, I think doctors are learning more and more about myeloma. And I was diagnosed in stage three with really bad bone disease. And I, I think 
I was considered higher risk after I stopped responding to therapy so quickly mm-hmm. and after stem cell transplant failed to put me into remissions and my doctors really thought I was what they called like functionally or clinically high risk. But um, over time, and this is just my hypothesis, but they start saying that there's a group of um, myeloma patients who respond very, very slowly to treatment, but once they respond, their disease kind of becomes indolent. And I probably belong to that group of patients that revert back to an MGUS, which is a precursor state to myeloma. Mm -hmm. Because um, once I got into what was called a very good partial remission, that means 90% of my myeloma went away. I really have never been in a complete remission. Um, my M-spike, which is the marker that measures how much myeloma in, is in your blood, kind of stayed steady at low levels at, at between a 0.4 and a 0.6. And, um, and it's just hanging there. So I guess I was a slow responder but stayed in there. And that's, that, that, that's another point is why you need to know about your cancer, about your myeloma, because everyone is so different. For someone else who may be a high risk or who responds very quickly but relapses very quickly, if their M-spike was at a 0.5, they may want to start treatment or change treatment. So you really need to know how, what your disease is and how you, how you respond. Yeah. So how often do you go for checkups or are you still on therapy now? I'm still on, on maintenance therapy. So um, How often is that? Now I do a monthly infusion of, or a sub-Q infusion of maintenance therapy. You know, that, that, that changed over time after I got my maximum response to a drug. I then started going weekly for maintenance therapy, then every other week, then every three weeks, and now we're just doing it once a month just to ho- hopefully, you know, keep my myeloma at bay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the treatment is effective for yes, the, it is. the physical part. Knock on wood, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What do you do for your mental and emotional health? You know what? I, I think being engaged and working as a patient advocate keeps keeps that mental, my mental abilities going. And just, you know, I enjoy hang, hanging out with my friends and being part of my daughter's life and just a variety of things, but uh, I think the patient advocacy really fulfills me, and it, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's funny because when I advocate in the myeloma space, I almost forget that I have myeloma. Really? Like, like I, I forget that, oh, I'm talking about me too, I'm more like the overall patient perspective, and I, yeah, it, and, and I, I think I could be at that place because my disease is under control and I'm not searching for treatments and I'm not relapsing, whereas I don't know if I could be doing that as effectively if I myself were relapsing and in a bad place. Yeah, that makes sense because then your energy needs to go towards your own treatment process. Mm -hmm. I know you also wrote in one of your articles um, the advice, embrace change, live at the edge of your comfort zone. Right. How are you embodying that? Well, you know, I, for the longest time, I, I, 
kind of embraced change, but I didn't live at the end of my comfort zone. I, I wanted to make sure things would always be okay. I didn't like to take a chance or take a risk at different things because I was afraid I would fail. And I guess once you get diagnosed with cancer, you have a different perspective on life. You know, you want to try everything you can because your life sometimes seems to be between bookends. So you want to make sure you, you, you give it a try. And so I've pushed beyond that comfort zone by, first of all, being an advocate. If you told me I'd be here today in a, in a room in Philadelphia doing a podcast, I would say, you have to be crazy. <laughs> if you told me I would be speaking in front of a room of 50,000 doctors talking about how social media can be used effectively in healthcare, I, if you told me that five years ago, I would say, no, I'm not going to do that because I was comfortable just taking the back seat. And yes, I would mentor someone one-on-one, -on -one, but to move to that next level. But I decide, I give myself a talking to and I push ahead. Um, um, I even pushed beyond my comfort zone when I, um, I Two years ago, I was part of, it, it, it's called Refresh, a Refresh Chapter. Mm -hmm. And a Refresh Chapter is for people who, who've had cancer and living life beyond cancer. And I was part of one of their um, experiences where I went to Peru and I volunteered in Peru in a um, senior center in a very, very poor section of Lima. And then as a weekend adventure, we got to climb Machu Picchu. Oh, wow. So I pushed beyond my comfort zone in two ways. First of all, I traveled outside of the country by myself into a country that they didn't speak English. And that was a little scary, flying by myself, you know, mm -hmm. into Lima and trying to find where I needed to go. And without being able to speak that language. And secondly, you know, I pushed myself by climbing to the top of Machu Picchu. I did have some help, but I got there, so. And I probably wouldn't have done that years ago. I would say, oh no, that's not for me. I could never do that. And I'm saying, now it's like, why not? That's Give excellent. it a try. Yeah, why not? Why not? Wow. What can I lose? So what have you learned about yourself that you didn't know about you before going through cancer? I guess I feel I'm more resilient than I ever thought I would have been. And um, yeah, that's, I, I guess resiliency, the ability to bounce back. I, I kind of knew I always saw the glass half full instead of half empty, but living this cancer experience I now know that's true. I like even when there's a setback, I don't dwell on it too long. I will just see that setback and then say, okay, what can we do next? Mm -hmm. I, I, so yeah, I, I guess that, that I, I've learned I have a positive outlook. I'm more resilient. And I also probably learned that I can help others. It sounds like you've also learned how adventurous you are <laughs> with Machu Picchu and travel, yes. a lot of travel. 
Yes, I actually also went to Lisbon by myself and spoke to a group of um, doctors at the European Bone Marrow Transplant Conference and, you know, once again about social media and I pushed myself to do that, you know, and and it was well worth it and after that I even traveled through Portugal for a few days exploring it by myself. So I've learned that I could do things by myself. And I, I, I pushed myself because in the very beginning, when I was newly diagnosed, I had an opportunity to be a patient ambassador where I would go out and speak to support groups um, about my, my experience and how important it is to be actively involved in your care and to educate yourself and, you know, to make sure your voice is heard. And those support groups were located throughout the country. But there were times where... I would be in a beautiful city like San Antonio, Texas, and afraid to come out of my hotel room because I had no one to be with. And, you know, or I, I would order room service because who sits down in, in a restaurant and eats by themselves? But it took me time to say, no, you could do this. You could go out by yourself. You could explore. You could eat. You, and I meet so many wonderful people that way, you know, just being by myself that... I start talking, and I end up with new friends. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and and we're so glad that you're a part of our blood cancer community. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was nice. Thank you. To read Cindy's articles and join the conversation, visit blood-cancer.com. You can find more health communities at health-union.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member. I hope by sharing these stories of people living with chronic conditions, we all gain a little more empathy and understanding, as well as gather inspiration. Thank you for listening. I'm Emily Downward.